What's your name? Stephen Fife. How many years did you play professional baseball? I was in from 2008 to 2018, but did not play in 15, so I think that's 10 seasons. What are you doing now? I'm working in commercial real estate for Cushman and Wakefield Pacific. When did you know that it was time to retire? Uh, last year, August was tough, but honestly, on the drive home, well, I finished this season, I closed the last game of the, the last inning of the last game and got a strikeout, got the ball. It wasn't a save opportunity, but anyway, kind of left on that and then made a phone call to my agent outside of uh, Amarillo, Texas, and he made the same decision in the same month on the same journey home in the exact same city as I did. So it was kind of a lot of things kind of matched up and just kind of said, it's time to move. Coming up on this edition of Life Around the Seams, our guest is Stephen Fife. Now, how it is that I came to interview Stephen is fascinating. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the highs and lows of his career, going to Japan, trying to come back from Tommy John surgery, what it was like pitching on the day of that Boston Marathon bombing when he knew people who were participating, and a lot more about his career. I don't know how long this is going to last, but I think it's going to be fun and interesting. I think Stephen had a lot of interesting things about his career and looking forward to learning about them. This is Life Around the Seams. Former Major League pitcher Jim Bouton once wrote, You spend a good piece of your life gripping a baseball, and in the end, it turns out, it was the other way around all the time. Welcome to Life Around the Scenes, a podcast about baseball people who have interesting stories from between the lines, and sometimes even more interesting stories outside the lines. Here's your host, Josh Sushan. Stephen, well, thanks for joining me here today from uh, we're on location in Boise, Idaho, your hometown, and I'm here visiting for uh, some work. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, absolutely. Fun to see you again. All right, so I'm going to give the background for our audience. Stephen played in the Little League World Series in 1999. He was part of the first team ever from the state of Idaho. He played second base, grew up here in Boise, went to Bora High School, Everett Community College, University of Utah, drafted by the Red Sox, third round, 2008. Three and a half years later, he's at Double A. Gets traded to the Dodgers. Made his major league debut for the Dodgers in 2012. Five starts that year. Ten in 2013. One in 2014. Tommy John surgery misses all of 2015. Cubs AAA in 2016. Marlins AAA and Japan in 2017. And then Indians AAA last year. A total of 808 innings in the minors. 18 appearances in the majors. Four wins. A 3.66 ERA in the majors. That's not bad. It's pretty good. It's not bad. It's a decent, <laughs> decent little sample, I guess. What did I forget? Nothing. I don't think. Everything's there. All right, so I'm going to start by explaining how we even came to be sitting in this hotel room doing this interview. So uh, I moonlight doing the Lobos women's basketball team. I look at the schedule. We're at Colorado State. We're at Boise State. I see we got about a day and a half in between. What am I going to do? Maybe I can record a podcast with someone who's in Boise. I, have no, I don't know anyone who's in Boise. I start Googling former major leaguers from Boise, thinking maybe somebody had like moved back home. 
I see a list of everyone who's born in the state of Idaho who's played in the major leagues. I see your name, and I go, no, he's still playing. I go, and I check, like, baseballreference.com. Yeah, he pitched last year. He's probably in spring training. I don't think there's a chance of getting him. Uh, Maybe it's not going to happen. Within 10 minutes, you sent me a LinkedIn invitation. It was serendipitous. So why why were you contacting me on LinkedIn? So, yeah, it's just part of the thing kind of – Moving on from playing baseball is you've got to create a way to connect with people outside of baseball, and LinkedIn apparently is the uh, the world's way of doing it, the professional world's way of doing it. So I've been working with a gal uh, out of New York that MLB put me in contact with to work on basically providing other people, making connections via LinkedIn. And so a couple times a week I'll get on there and just start going through the list, and if I know your name, I'll connect with you. And if you're in the commercial real estate or the in, in, in real estate world at all kind of in any fashion i'll try to connect with you and you know eventually some direct messages are sent between one another and you kind of reconnect with some people that you don't know uh, or kind of lost touch with i guess and then you you obviously connect with people that you don't know to try to grow your network and be able to operate in the business world yeah it's crazy i just figured some russian bots were like uh <laughs> were like paying attention to what was going on or whatever but i'm glad that we're able to connect so let's talk let's talk your career let's talk some baseball um this is march normally you're in spring training is this triggering different emotions weird emotions that you're not in arizona or florida right now throwing a baseball it's a little different. Uh, I've still got buddies, obviously, that are playing, so I'm getting the Snapchats and the, the, the goofy messages from all those guys that are having a good time. But, I mean, honestly, I think I think I was at a point, and I am at a point where I was ready to move on, and so I haven't really had that 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 tough day where I'm sitting in the office going, oh, this sucks, like I'm in the wrong place. I mean, I'm in the right place where I'm supposed to be right now, and uh, I wouldn't trade my career for anything. It was a fantastic experience, but, I mean, the only thing I really miss about the clubhouses or the spring training atmosphere is just how big the clubhouse is when you get there and you get to interact with all these guys you haven't seen in a while and meet new guys and create all new relationships. But I'm getting to do that in a completely different way right now. And, uh, it's been fulfilling on this side, but definitely, definitely enjoyed what I did. But, uh, I can't say that I miss the looming departure after spring training (laughs) and not knowing where you're going to go, whether it was high school, junior college, college, what was plan B if baseball had not worked out? Did you have one? I did. Uh, so I went to junior college in an effort to just get Division One, and uh, I left high school with a dream of becoming a hand surgeon. So I started off uh, on that path, and then shortly after I got to Utah, uh, just into my junior year, actually, I'm sorry, just my second semester of my sophomore year, I was in the second round of science courses, the 102 or 202 courses, and I was scheduled to miss like eight of the 15 labs for each one because they were – usually given on Thursdays and Fridays in which Utah we traveled Thursdays and Fridays for most of the semester. So I approached the the professors and they were like, yeah, you can't take this course because you're going to make up two laps, so you will fail. Um, And so at that point I kind of U-turned and got some advice from some some professional people out there that are successful that are still still in my life now and decided on business finance was the direction I was on. So that's when I left Utah after being drafted, I was a business finance major. Okay, it's interesting that you um, were interested in being a hand surgeon. Uh, you didn't hear it, but our audience did. The uh, the opening where it's got this cool jingle, uh, we quote um, uh, the guy who wrote Ball Four, uh, Jim Bouton, uh, who famously once said, you spend your whole life gripping a baseball. And in the end, it turns out it was the other way around the whole time. <laughs> and I'm curious your thoughts on that quote with your career, especially since you originally considered being a hand specialist. That's an interesting quote. I mean, so, yeah, you, you spend a lot of your time gripping a baseball and trying to figure out how to manipulate it, and then uh, 
it definitely takes hold of your life uh, in, a, in, a, in a lot of fashions and has definitely molded me uh, into what I've, <clears throat> what I've become over here in the last, especially the last 15 years or so since you kind of turned the page out of junior high and high school and get out of your parents' house. And baseball has really been the, the thing that has, uh, it's, the, it's the game that teaches you life. And so uh, I think that's kind of more where that quote's going is that uh, the baseball side of things really does translate to life and the ups and downs, especially on the player side of things where you have to, really figure out how to how to operate in uh, not the best circumstances at times. If a team calls and they say, hey, we need some depth at AAA and you got a chance, you know, how's your arm, you know, what do you say? No, nah, I, uh, I shut that down. I told my agent, he called me to make sure that our conversation was how we had it uh, in just before the winter meetings. And uh, I had that last kind of heart-to-heart with him and just said, you know, if, there's, if an Asian team calls with a guaranteed contract, then I'll 100% go play. But right now I'm not throwing, I'm not working out. I'm spending time with my kids and trying to get my real estate license in Arizona. And so don't even bring up my name to major league clubs. Um, so at that point is when I really kind of really shut the shut the cover on the book and, and, and put it away. All right, well then let's open up one of the first chapters of the book, the Little League World Series. How many <laughs> players from that team, how many teammates do you still have their phone number in your cell phone right now? Uh, probably eight of the 11. That's pretty darn good. Seven or eight of the 11. Yeah. I've, uh, I've, I, it was a group that we started when we were nine years old. Um, it was kind of the same crew. We all grew up in the same area and all played together for a long time. And I still keep in touch. In fact, my, uh, my oldest son is named after kind of named after not in, in fully named after for him, but <clears throat> Austin Jones was the catcher on the little league world series team. He was my catcher in high school. He went to a different junior college, but then joined me at the University of Utah. We were roommates there, and uh, has been a good buddy of mine for a long time. So uh, I keep in touch with a lot of those guys. What are some of your biggest – first of all, did you realize just what a big deal the Little League World Series was at the time when you, when you arrived? Not, not a chance. In fact, uh, <laughs> we were sitting in, in Williamsport, Pennsylvania after this flight from California – and it's probably, we probably another day or two, and uh, we're upstairs in this, like, gaming room. There's ping-pong tables and pool tables, and back then there was, I think it was Nintendo 64 is what they had. <laughs> uh, so we're up in this room, and we're playing around, and they had, like, this, you know, probably 40-inch flat screen on the, te- on, on the wall, which was one of the first we'd ever seen, you know. The flat screens were completely new. And it was an ESPN broadcast of the game happening 100 yards from where we were at. I mean, it was literally, you could look out the window across the pool and down the hill, and there was Howard J. Lamotte Stadium, and there's an international game being played. And that was kind of the first time that I was like, wow, this is kind of weird. Like, that's ESPN. Like, that's a cable. Like, that's we watch that at night. Baseball Tonight's on the same channel. And that was kind of our first uh, taste of what we got. But it really actually didn't sink in all the way until we got all the way back home, and we flew back into, the, you know, Boise Terminal. And we get out of the plane, and actually before we get off the plane, they're like, if you were a part of the Little League team, like, you got to stay on the plane. And we're all going like, what? You stay on the plane? Like, let's go home, man. We've been away from home for like three or four weeks. And um, sure enough, we come off the plane, and they had, this is before, obviously, TSA got all cracked down on, and um, there was probably 1,500 people in the terminal, like, cheering for us when we got off the plane. I mean, it was crazy, so... Uh, and then we had like a parade and a whole thing. We got out of school a couple times the first week, but it really wasn't until we literally kind of got off the plane back from Williamsport and there was 
you know, nobody'd ever seen that many people in an air terminal. When you were in Williamsport, you're 12 years old. Are you signing autographs or like people like you know pointing and like you know like you're like you're a major leaguer almost? Yeah, I mean, we definitely did. We did sign autographs. I mean, no, none of us knew what we were going to sign, but we all ended up finding our own little way to sign our name or whatever. And um, you know, when Williamsport is a super small town, and it's such a the trees and the, the geography of the place really make it feel like you're just kind of in another little league town, a little league park type deal. Um, we knew it was kind of a big deal because we got outfitted with all new stuff, but. Uh, you know, they really make it feel like it's a really small community when you're there. And so uh, when you're walking around, you're not getting bombarded by it. I mean, I'm sure now that social media is blown up, I'm sure that there's a ton more attention to the players as they're there. In fact, when you watch it, they're bust in, and their dorms are literally like maybe 150 yards up the hill. We used to just walk. But, um, yeah, it's uh, we, we had a great time. We could walk around and do whatever we wanted, and they had this pin trading tent for all the players and fans, and we'd go in there and use our pins and trade them here and there, and uh, it was a cool experience. What what mementos still remain that you still have from that? <laughs> well, my mom's my mom was a scrapbooker back in the day, and so I've got I was actually I just moved up here, so I just was going through a bunch of stuff, and I've got like full size posters of of the little league team before we went to the regional and at the regional, and some of the Idaho statesmen papers and print-offs i got a bunch of stuff still and i didn't even open a couple of the boxes that are just i probably got four boxes and then some some stuff that doesn't fit in the box but i've got quite a bit of stuff and my trophy case has a spot in it for we got like a little certificate of a world you know little league world series participant that's in there and some pictures and some balls and stuff and so and excuse me the jersey and hat are definitely on display in my office so uh, I've got quite a bit of stuff. When does it kind of wear off? Like you go back to school, I would think you guys are a big deal when you go back to school, you and your teammates. Like, w- when do you just become normal kids again? Uh, probably when football practice really started getting going. Um, the first couple of weeks was definitely interesting because we, we actually were all transitioning here in Boise. You don't have a middle school, you junior highs, and so you transition from 6th to 7th grade from the elementary. And so we were all just getting into 7th grade, so we're all going from our respective elementaries into basically two junior highs. And they honored us like over the announcements and we're all new kids in this school that's you know 10 times the size of the little elementary school we just came from and uh yeah we were kind of little little local celebrities they did like a at least at west junior high they did a little presentation like a little lunchtime pulled all the classes a whole population of the school into the gym and did a little presentation as well so it was kind of cool but it, it lasted a couple weeks and then football season started and that was the most important thing yeah that, that becomes the most important thing when, when do you become a pitcher you were second baseman then did you pitch at all then i got forced into a couple games early in my childhood um i think i pitched once when i was 10 i pitched maybe once or twice when i was 11 12 and then tried again when i was 14 and my brother was a pitcher and i just i i honestly wasn't good enough to pitch i didn't have the ability to command the baseball at all and so um watching my brother be successful at it, but the kind of pressure that we got put on him, I was just like, you know, I don't ever want to pitch. And so never planned to pitch. Uh, I broke my thumb my sophomore year on varsity as a third baseman. And uh, by by way of default, I was out for six to eight weeks, which was pretty much the entire high school season. So I used a bucket of balls, uh, went to practice with the team, Didn't wasn't able to do much because I didn't have a glove on my hand. Uh, but it would keep my arm in shape by grabbing the bucket of balls when they were doing base running and stuff like that to to keep my arm in shape and uh, ended up one day throwing, uh, I put a metal chair on top of the plate and started throwing balls at it 
and uh, was screwing, just honestly, just playing around. And uh, I threw a couple curveballs and dropped the curveball right on top of the seat, right on top of the plate. And uh, I had no idea anybody was watching me, but the guy who ran the pitchers, uh, who is a local guy here still, Brad Dalton, came over to me. He's like, what are you doing? And I was like, I just playing around. And he's like, what would you just throw? And I was like, what do you mean? Throw a baseball. And he goes, no, what pitch did you throw? And I, th- I said, curveball. And he's like, you know what you're doing? And I was like, no. <laughs> and he goes, well, you're a pitcher now. And I looked at him and I said, no, I'm not. And he's like, no, you're going to come to pitcher's practice tomorrow at 3. And he had a whole routine. But anyway, that's how it all started. And uh, my first time back on a diamond after breaking my thumb was a relief appearance uh, at Timberline High School here locally. And it was in a summer legion game. And I went like four and a third innings, and we got the win. And I was pretty beat up after, but it was awesome. <laughs> Tell me about why Utah. You went from high school to a junior college. Why Utah? Uh, so from junior college, I was I had already talked to Conger. Uh, Brian Conger was a pitching coach at University of Utah. I worked with him at a couple camps. I actually he almost signed me out of high school to go there. Um, the proximity to Boise was was attractive to me. Uh, I had some family stuff go down my senior year, so I wanted to be close for for my sister who was still in Boise and. Uh, yeah, the the coaching fit was the biggest thing, and honestly, I kind of probably lacked the confidence necessary to. I got explored a little bit by Pepperdine, University of Arizona, Gonzaga, um, but when Utah came a calling, and I I knew I had already had a relationship with them, that I kind of knew that's where I wanted to go, and so they took me on an official visit and offered me a scholarship, and I pretty much signed right there and didn't really explore any further than the conversations and finances were probably the biggest player that. Gonzaga, Pepperdine, and Arizona were all well into the uh, mid-20s, if not 50s, mm-hmm. uh, for finances. And uh, I didn't want to take on a $150,000 in debt in three or four years of playing college baseball. If I'm, uh, unless I'm mistaken, 1999, I know the draft was out on TV. I'm pretty sure it wasn't even on the Internet yet. So you were third-round pick. What do you remember about the day? How did you even find out that you were drafted? What do you remember about that day? So that was 2008. Um no, it was on the internet then. Yeah, it was. Okay. So, so the first round was on, I think the first round was covered on TV, and then they took it from TV and put it on the internet right after. And so we things picked up pretty quickly, and I got put in the talks and put in the prospect list and stuff, but there was a chance that I could go in the first or second round and got some calls from some teams the night before. Anyway, so we went up to a bar out here called Rudy's. Mm-hmm. which was a new bar at the time, uh, not too far from where I grew up, and called all my family friends and buddies and everything and threw a kind of a draft party my mom put together for me. And uh, so we all sitting there hanging out and waiting for things to happen and watching it. We actually streamed it off of my laptop onto, like, their projector screen. And so, uh, yeah, things went that way, and I got the phone call just before, just before I got drafted and – Things got pretty pretty elated. It was a fun, was a fun <laughs> day, and then and then of course after that the beer started flowing. Yeah, how many days later until you're on a plane to what Lowell, Massachusetts, to be with the Lowell Spinners to start your career? That's right. Actually, we, they flew us into Boston because Lowell's only 40 minutes out, and I actually got to uh, got the opportunity to sign in Fenway Park in the GM's booth up there. Uh, so I was with Theo and Mike Hazen or Kel Ferreira, and um, yeah, in the in the in the iconic GM booth that still sits exactly where it sits today. Um, but I think it was, it was about 10 days or so. I think the draft was, I signed 
June 17th, I believe, was the day I signed. And I think the draft was like the 6th. So it took a, took a few days to work out the contract details. It actually took a few days for them just to call to even start negotiations because they had some other stuff going, and baseball is a crazy business world. So, uh, yeah, about, about 10 days after the draft, I was in Boston and signed a contract. Where's the first place you live in Lowell, Massachusetts? Are you with a host family? Are you with teammates? Who are you with? No, so the, the, the Lowell Spinners play on the UMass Lowell campus on their baseball field, and we stayed in the UMass Lowell dorms. Do you feel like you're still in college? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely did. I mean, we, they were actually decent dorms. They weren't like your standard or old school, I guess, like 12 by 12 room with a bunk bed in them. It was kind of a, uh, a multi a multi-bedroom with a one common area. So we had like a kitchen and a family room in the common area. There was a bathroom on each end. And then I think there was three bedrooms in the apartment. So we started there and then the, the it rained a bunch and the apartments got black mold. The dorms did. And so we ended up spending like the back half of the season living at the red lion on the river because we didn't have anywhere else to go. Did you have any teammates or yourself who just, didn't know how to cook, didn't know how to do laundry, just didn't know how to be an adult that led to funny circumstances. <laughs> I, uh, I've said for a long time, and I, uh, there's guys out there that probably attest to it, I've taught guys how to load dishwashers, do their laundry, drive a stick shift, write a check, how to so read So you're the bill. dad. Yeah, I've, 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 ta- I've, <laughs> I've had a couple players, and uh, I don't know if they'll ever hear this interview, but I've, I've had a couple guys call me dad. Like, literally, when I walk in the clubhouse, I go, there's Dad. Or, you know, it's just the way it goes. But, I mean, yeah, Ryan Westmoreland was a guy I lived with in spring training one year. Good kid. Unfortunate story for him. He's guys had a couple E60 stories written about him. Uh, and, anyway, I taught him how to literally, he bought a, he got a big bonus, and he bought a condo in Estero, Florida. And I taught him how to pay the cable bill and how to read this bank statement and how to balance his checkbook and, Anyway, yeah, it's it's kind of funny. I've done a lot of those dad-type things, but I guess that's just a testament to my parents being able to teach me those things before I got out of the house. Did you ever have any off-season jobs in the minor leagues? In the minor leagues, no. Um, in college, of course, I had quite a few different odds and ends. What would you do? So the summer before my junior year, I worked at Interstate Trailers, and before that... What was the other job I did that summer? I had two jobs, but the real grinder summer was between my freshman and sophomore years. I came home after college ball, and I worked at Fuddruckers, rolling buns in the morning from like 6 a.m. or 7 a.m. till probably 2 or 3 in the afternoon. Minimum wage? Yeah, I'm sure it was. And then right after that, I'd go work at delivery at Domino's. So I was doing about 80 hours a week. Wow. I was working like 7 a.m. to 2 a.m. Uh, four or five days a week. I know it's cliche, but when you're doing that, are you thinking, okay, baseball is going to get is going to take me away from this? Like, is, <laughs> does that add to the motivation at all, or what? No, not. I mean, I honestly, I was not a prospect in baseball until a Thursday night in San Diego against Steven Strasburg. So, at this point, it was just I knew I had no money, and I knew I had nobody going to give me any money, and so it was like I need to earn as much money as possible um, in this summer so that I can go into utah and pay my rent before you know the financial aid and the loans come through and so that was that was the main motivation was to be able to just get through the first couple months at utah before i could for sure get the loan money to cover the rest of the year well now we have to know about this thursday night against steven strasburg against (laughs) san diego state i mean he was the 
prospect. He was on the Olympic team in 2008. He was throwing 100. Everyone knew he was going to go first overall. You matched up against him, apparently. Tell us about that game. Yeah, so leading up to that game, we knew we were going to San Diego State, and I was deemed the, the Friday night guy, but this week we were traveling with BYU, so we played Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and my coach came to me earlier in the week and was like, hey, we're not going to throw you on Thursday. We're going to keep you on Friday. Uh, they they've got their stud going Thursday. So, you know, basically we got no shot at this. So we're going to, we're going to try and win the back half of the series. We land, we take off on Thursday, on Wednesday, af- Wednesday afternoon, Wednesday evening. And my coach going to do you're going to pitch tomorrow. So I ended up lining up with Strasburg on a Thursday night. I had no idea who Steven Strasburg was. I hadn't, you know, when you're in college, you're not really reading the prospect reports so you're just trying to figure out how to get all your classwork done. So we, we roll into San Diego and, Thursday night in college baseball is a dead night, and we were in San Diego. And so anybody within the region heard, obviously scout-wise, that uh, that Strasburg was going to go. He was sick the week before with the flu or something like that. So he didn't pitch the week before. So he's on you know a couple weeks of rest. So we rolled the balls out, and uh, he went full nine. He went complete game, struck out, what was it, 23, I think. <laughs> he was sitting 99 in the ninth inning. I went like seven plus innings, I think seven and a third. There was three hits in the game. I gave up one. Strasburg gave up one. He gave up one hit in the ninth. I punched out, I think, like 11. And the only run scored in the game was with two outs and a runner on third. My third baseman got a ground ball to him. And instead of throwing it across the diamond for the third out at first, he threw it home and off the runner's helmet. So the unearned run scored, and we lost 1-0. But at the end of the day, it was uh, it was that a put you on the map. That yeah. put you on the scouts map. That put me, yeah. That took me from a fringe prospect into the top three rounds, top five rounds. Some some projected me. I mean, like first round ish. So that's I pitched well the next three or four weeks ahead as well. But um, yeah, it was a it was a it was a time from my coach sitting me down and going, "You don't need an agent." Because you're going to be a tenth round pick, and you're going to get fifty grand. You're going to go play baseball. To you need an agent. Here's a couple names to choose from, and I would go with one of these guys. And we need to start preparing you for what's coming. Wow. Who who did you end up picking, and why? Agent wise, uh, I picked a guy named Lenny Strelitz. Um, a because my coach sent sent him to me, and B because when I talked to him, he wasn't a salesman. He was a guy with a track record of picking, hand-selecting the guys he represented, not taking in the masses, but taking in the quality. He liked how I pitched. He liked my demeanor. He was willing to fly to Salt Lake and watch me pitch again and then meet with my parents and I, um, take us out to dinner, do the whole thing. I mean, that's kind of standard issue in the agent world. But uh, his character was easy to judge. He wasn't hiding anything. He wasn't selling anything it was just this is what i do this is what i can offer you outside of uh outside of the game uh this is what other agents don't do and i know they don't do and he had a he had a full repertoire he played pro ball he was in the front office uh with the expos and the rangers and then ended up deciding to be an agent so i thought it was the best all-around guy to go to and he wasn't hounding me on a nightly basis to sign with him yeah Let's skip ahead to July 31st, 2011. You get traded along with Tim Fedorovich and Juan Rodriguez to the Dodgers for Trayvon Robinson. You are at Double A at the time. You're at Double A Portland, second year at Double A in the Eastern League. 
It's the trading deadline, but I wouldn't think that you expected to get traded. Well, we, every every player at the trading deadline, if they're having a decent season, hopes it's the year that they get traded because everybody knows if you get traded, somebody sees value. So until you get that kind of uh, assurance, I guess, you kind of just think you're a worthless minor league player unless you've got you know a first-round cloud or a bunch of money behind you. So uh, just to throw it out there, in that trade as well, it was a three-team deal. So Trayvon went from the Dodgers to the Mariners, and then the Red Sox ended up getting Josh right. Fields and also Eric Bedard. So there's a little more, a couple more pieces to that puzzle. But yeah, I mean, it was it was a crazy night. I mean, we didn't expect it to to happen. And I was actually in the stands in Portland charting that night and came in, and everybody's joking around with one another. Oh, you got traded! You got traded! And then I came in the clubhouse after the team had already been in there, and one of my buddies, the guy who's actually the Boise State pitching coach now, looked at me and goes, Fife, you got traded. I looked, I looked at him and gave him a gesture and mouthed something not so audible for radio uh, and uh, went into my locker and then went to, in the bathroom to relieve myself after sitting there for three hours, and on, they had the radio on in the clubhouse. And nobody had an iPad on or any iPod, and they had the radio announcer on from the thing. And I heard the guy say, Tim Fedorovich and Stephen Five have been traded to the Dodgers. And I came out of the bathroom and I was like, what? Is it somebody messing around? Like, what's going on here? And sure enough, my manager was standing, standing in the hallway. He said, Fife, Fed, in my office right now. She called me in, called us in, let us know we were, uh, we were headed out of town tomorrow. Wow. we got to talk about Tim Fedorovich. <laughs> Because if my research is correct, he caught you 2008 short season Lowell, 2009 low A Greenville, 2009 high A Salem, 2011 double A Portland. You both get traded together. Triple uh, A Albuquerque 2012, Triple A Albuquerque 2013, 2013 in the major leagues with the Dodgers, 2014 again Albuquerque. We're not done. You both signed with the Cubs. You, and then he catches you at Triple A Iowa. I want to know, number one, why did he not go to Japan with you? Because <laughs> they don't take catchers. Was he in your wedding? It, it, it's funny you say that. Uh, yes, kind of he was. Um, so my wife and I decided to just go to Hawaii and do it on our own dime and do it real quiet. And the, <laughs> to match up with kind of how coincidental our whole careers lined up to be, he had planned his off-season vacation with his then-girlfriend uh, to be in Maui the same weekend my wife and I got married at the same hotel. No way. You hadn't planned this. Not not one bit. So my wife and I had booked this pre-spring training 2012 to go to Maui and get married in December. And I think Fed found out in September when we were both call-ups in L.A. And he was like, you're going to Maui in December? And I was like, yeah, first of the month. And he's like, no kidding. I'm like, yeah. And he's like, I'll be there. I think we got married on the 1st, and he was getting into – we got into town a couple days before, so late November, and he got into town like a day after and was staying like three days longer than we were. And I was like, well, I guess if you're going to be there, dude, like you might as well show up. And literally like my cousin who lived in Hawaii came to the wedding and fed, and that was it. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I love it. So he was in your wedding. Who has caught you more, Tim Fedorovich or every other catcher? combined i bet feds caught me the majority it's uh it's one of those things that i was super blessed to have uh later in my career it became a little more daunting on me that i kind of missed the the road of 
like ironing out a relationship with the catcher totally organically because Fed and I started together and went so many years in a row that it was just kind of I didn't have to tell him anything. He knew my stuff. He knew what I my strengths. He knew what what pitches I wanted to go to and where. And we had that relationship where if I chose the wrong pitch, he let me know. So um, it was an unbelievable experience to be able to do that, and it's kind of funny. We, he, he and I are still good buddies to this day. I saw him uh, the week before we left Arizona to move to Idaho. He was uh, he was down in Arizona visiting his wife's parent, his wife's mom, and we got to hang out again. And yeah, he's a he's an unbelievable guy, and a, a guy I'll be a friend. I'll, I'll be friends with the rest of my life. It's a good thing you guys got along. Like, what if you guys hated each other? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I guess that would have been terrible. If, if, he was, uh, if he was some guy I couldn't get along with, and yet he was back there more often than not, I'm sure it, would have, uh, it, wouldn't, have, it wouldn't have been as fun for sure. I think we probably would have both been professional enough to, to do the job, but uh, it's, it's better that we're good buddies and we've, we've done a lot of things together. Okay, so this might be really random, so bear with me here. I was at the Boise Zoo yesterday. And, uh, and afterwards, um, I'm prepping for our, for our podcast here, and I'm, and I'm getting my numbers right about you and Fed. And at the lion's den, there's two lions. And I walked by a couple of times, and at first, they're just both sleeping there. And then later, one, just, one never moved, and the other kind of walked around a little bit. And I thought to myself, what if these two lions hate each other, right? Like the only other species that you are around your entire life. One of one of them's like, yeah, this sucks. We're in captivity, but let's have some fun. Let's play around. It's like the super hyper one. And what if the other one was like, no, like these humans are the reason that we're stuck here. Like, why are you showing off for them? No, let's just be miserable and like, leave me alone. Like, what if the two lions hated each other? And so I thought, well, what if Fife and FedEx hated each other or Skipping ahead a little bit, you go to Japan. For the most part, I'm assuming that you hang out with like the other English speakers. What if you don't get along with them? Like, like the randomness of life with certain people. And so, well, it's a good thing you got along with them. Yeah, I'm. I'm not one to generally be disliked too much. I, I definitely push people away at the beginning just because I'm kind of a stronger personality. But yeah, I mean, when I got when I got over to Japan, it was just like that. I mean, you kind of lean towards the guys who speak English and try to buddy up with them and happened when I was over there was two Latin guys and then uh, the translator was a Taiwanese guy and then my wife came over a couple weeks later and it was it was us but uh, yeah no it's a that you're right I mean you try to be as uh, as easy a person to get along with in baseball I think is the best way to go about it and try to make as many friends as you can because your family for six months a year and if you're if you don't make those relationships good it makes for a long year let's talk about your major league debut Tuesday, July 17th, 2012, Dodger Stadium against the Phillies. It's a Tuesday night, and there's 53,498 fans there. And the lineup that you face, Jimmy Rollins, Shane Victorino, Chase Utley, Ryan Howard, uh, Ruiz, I'm blanking on his first name. Thank you. Uh, Hunter Pence, Juan Pierre, Placido Polanco, and the opposing starting pitcher is Roy Effine Halliday. When you get the lineup card, you know, you sit down with the pitching coach and the catcher, you get the lineup card. What are you thinking? So I get off the plane at LAX. They give me a car. I get to Dodger Stadium. I got my bags. I walk in. It's old locker room, Dodger Stadium. And on my chair is the lineup. And originally it was Cliff Lee at the bottom of that lineup. So I sit down and read the lineup. And I think, it's the, I think it was the year after they won the World Series. So I think they're, you know, six they're months, stacked. eight months yeah. removed of, of a world championship. Um. I was on kind of a nice little streak in, in Albuquerque, so I was feeling pretty good, but obviously super nervous and super unsure of everything. And so, so you flew in the day of the start. I did. Okay, I flew in probably 
it was before BP, so I probably got there at like one, two o'clock. They didn't take me to the hotel before, so I didn't get there like in the morning for sure. So uh, yeah, I sit down and, and, and read the lineup, and just as you thought, I'm like, damn, this is this is a lineup, yo. Like this is the big leagues, like this is the real deal. Um, and then a couple hours later, go. I, I mean, I meet with. I think it was Matt Trainer. I think caught that night. See, the trainer AJ Ellis would would have been. I think it was. I would think it was Matt Trainer. He caught me, so he takes me in and with Honeycutt, and we go through the lineup, and we go through the holes and the, the whole thing, and I go back out there and sit down, and he said, hey, there's an adjustment to the lineup. And they hand it to him, like, what is it? And I looked down at the bottom, and it's freaking Roy Halladay. I'm like, good Lord. Like, So I was I was facing a Cy Young Award winner in, in Cliff Lee, who was supposed to be coming I think he was supposed to be coming off of uh, one of the two. I think Cliff Lee was coming off of rehab, and they pushed him a day. And they let Halliday take his day, something like that, or vice versa. But yeah, it was uh, that was an interesting day because it was, yeah, a little intimidating to see Hall of Famers. I mean, Cy Young Award winners, both of them, on on the lineup card. And guess what? Tonight you're getting the the defending world champions and a Cy Young Award winner to go against. Welcome to the major leagues. So when you finish your warm up tosses in the bullpen and you're, and you're walking out, and Dodger Stadium's packed because it's always packed, and you, you know. What, what are you thinking? Like, what kind of butterflies? What? How are your emotions as you're walking from the bullpen back out to the dugout? So I always told myself to keep my eyes down. So um, and, and keep my eyes on the next step is kind of like the the motto behind me. And so I get I get I get pretty emotionless and and just super focused. So I wasn't really trying to pay attention to anything. Obviously, people are hollering and screaming and. You give the high fives to the teammates in the, in the bullpen, and literally the whole way down there, I don't think I looked up. I think I just literally was looking at the next step I was taking and just you know, reminding myself, like, this is the same game. It doesn't matter the stadium, how big it is, how many people there are, that there's a third deck or a fourth deck in Dodger Stadium. Uh, but the, the, just take it one step at a time. And so my whole way there, that's, uh, that's kind of all I was doing. And um, it was, yeah, it was, it was pretty wild. And you pitched your ass off. You went six innings. You allowed one run. The Dodgers are leading 2-1. You're beating Roy Halladay. And then things fall apart in the eighth inning. Ronald Belisario gets two outs, then a walk, then two hit by pitches. He's out. Kenley Jansen is a rookie at the time, I believe. Hunter Pence, two-run single. There goes the lead. Dodgers lose 3-2, but you pitched your ass off. Yeah, I gave up. Uh, I think Michael Young hit a double off me in the first inning and ended up scoring. And the only thing I can really recall that changed changed my mindset was Donnie, Donnie Baseball, when I'm walking in the dugout after the first inning, he looked at me and said, that's all they get. And I took that as, <laughs> I took that as a directive. Like, <laughs> listen, son, like, that's all they get. So, um, sure enough, it worked out that way. I kind of settled down. First, I was obviously you know, nervous and took it in the first inning and uh, gave up a run and then ended up, yeah, ended up pitching pretty well and, the Ronald Belisario blow in the wind is a common theme if you look at, like, the first six games of my career. Yeah. I've, I've looked at just the starters that you faced. Roy Halladay, Matt Cain, Patrick Corbin, Adam Wainwright, and Matt Latos. Those were the opposing starters in, for your five starts in 2012. Yeah, there's, I, I, there was some sort of record or something like the, the first. I was the first pitcher in Dodger history or first pitcher in Major League history to face three Cy Young Award winners in his first four, four starts. Because Wainwright had won one, uh-huh. Kane and Halliday are all Cy Young Award winners. So, um, yeah, it was a little bit of a daunting thing. And and, that, and back then, Latos was throwing cheddar. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was sitting 96, 97, and 
he's a big old boy back then. So, so the life of a uh, of a guy who's trying to break in, you know, it's not easy. It's not supposed to be easy. You make a good start. Uh, you were replacing Chad Billingsley. If my research is correct, he comes back. You go down to Triple A. You make one start. Nathan Evaldi gets traded to the Marlins in the Hanley Ramirez deal. Now you're back up in the major leagues, and you get your first major league win. You beat the Giants and Matt Cain. Nope, not a win. It was not a win. I thought it was six and a third innings against the Giants, and you got the win. Belisario blew that one too. What? <clears throat> Darn you, internet research! I didn't. I didn't get a win until 2013. Darn you, research! Oh, the Dodge. Wait, the Dodgers won, but you didn't get the win. That's right. Okay, Ronald Belisario. Um. I know the coaches always say, look, you know, you can't control this stuff, shut out the noise, just focus on what you can do, all that. But how easy is that? How hard is that? You know, they ended up trading for Joe Blanton, and so now you go back down to the minor leagues again, and you're trying to get established, you're trying to do these things, and so much of it is out of your hands. Kind of how do you mentally process, um, you know, the, just the trying to break in and stay in? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's – you just, you just live it. I mean, you just go day at a time, step at a time, moment at a time. Um, I mean, we made it. I made it through the deadline. Like there was chatter all around the Dodgers that they were going to trade for a, for a starter. And August first came, and they didn't make the trade. And so I thought, I, I'm here. This is the, I'm 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 going to be in the rotation the rest of the season. And then I think on the third, August third, they traded for Blanton. <laughs> and uh, obviously it was announced, and the first guy to greet him in L.A. that was a part of the Dodgers with myself at the hotel desk. I okay. was like, shook his hand. and was like, hey, man, nice to meet you. And I'll see you never. Or I'll see you back in September, you know. So uh, that's the way we – I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I had broken with the Dodgers when they were not quite a – in a financial situation. They were getting over the Frank McCourt ownership. And so it was, uh, it was a time where there's a lot of uncertainty around the finances. And so – 2011, there wasn't a lot of spending going on, and then obviously Mark Walter and the Guggenheim Group took it over, and so kind of knew that In Magic came down and, and gave us a spiel as well. Uh, what was that like? He is he is captivating. So he gave us like a full blown like pump up speech. Uh, I think right after the deadline. I think it was I think it was literally like the deadline closed on August 31st, or I'm sorry, is it July 31st? Yeah. Deadline closed on July 31st, and that before the game, he came down and was like, "We're we are where we are, and we're, you got what you need, so go get them." And it was it was really cool. So, uh, and then of course, three days later, I'm back in Albuquerque. So, <laughs> when you go back to AAA, do you feel like like the eyes are on you? Like, how's he going to react? Is he going to be in a bad mood? Is he? Did you do you consciously think I need to act a certain way, especially since you're the dad of the clubhouse? <laughs> well, Triple A, 2012, I was not the dad of the okay. clubhouse. Uh, I did, I, in the lower minor leagues, when I was the guy out of college and everybody else was out of high school and no, no life experience, I was the dad. But Triple A is a different beast. So, uh, But, yeah, no, you definitely um, – I remember talking to Jean after coming back down. You have three days technically to report to your minor league club after getting sent down from the big leagues. And um, obviously some guys take those days and some guys don't. And I con- definitely consciously – took the approach of, of not taking those days and getting me back, even though there was days or times where when I got sent down, like, hey, like, why don't you take a day at home and we can't activate you for a little while. we got to kind of shuffle the rotation to fit you back in down there or whatever it was. Um, but I was just like, no, I'll just go to Albuquerque and I'll show up to the park, and if I can't play, then I can't suit up or whatever, then I won't. But I'll be there with the team and support the guys, and I'm as much a part of this organization at in Albuquerque as I am in the big leagues. So I 
I did my best to make sure that that was that was seen from me. The one time that I remember that I would felt the worst for you, I think it was 2014, and we had just bust to Fresno. And everyone knew that you were going to start like the next day, like in Chicago or whatever. And I was like, why in the world did they make this dude bus with us down to Fresno just so that he can turn around and fly to wherever he's going? Because at that time, you were back and forth constantly starting the major, starting in AAA. And I'm like, this tiny airport in Fresno, what in the world are they doing? Why is he not just going to – he must have been in Sacramento or Reno or everywhere. And I remember just feeling like, God damn, what is wrong? Like, there's got to be a better way to do this. Yeah, that was a tough night. Uh, I think that was August the 13th, August 1st, I think, or yeah, August 1st, I think I pitched in Wrigley. And yeah, you're right. We uh, we were in Sacramento. We bust to Fresno. It was supposed to be like a four-hour ride. There's construction. It ended up being like a six-hour ride. Yep. Uh, we got in, I think, at like 3.30 in the morning, and I had a taxi to the airport at 5. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that was that was a rough go because they wanted to get me to this, to Chicago how did that work out? Because I got to Chicago the night before the start. So whatever it was, I had a I, I had an all-night bus ride, early flight out. I didn't get to I – I think I got delayed on the way to Chicago from Fresno three or four hours. So I, didn't, I was supposed to get there at like 7 or 8 in the evening. No, I think it was early, like 3 or 4 in the evening. I didn't get there until 7 or 8. Ended up get, meeting up with Rizzo, and his parents cooked us a, a pasta dinner the night before with Fedorovich as well. Okay, of we course. We all played together, and Fed was already up. So Fed and Riz were hanging out since after the day game, you know, 5 o'clock or whatever, and I didn't roll in until it was later, 8 or 9 p.m. Went over and had cold pasta dinner and reheated pasta dinner at that. But um, anyway, yeah, no, that was uh, that's one of those minor league days where you go, this, this sucks. But I ended up going out there and pitching well against the Cubs, and, I got to break my buddy off, so that was kind of cool. I still got the bat in my office. So Riz sent over his uh, his, his two piece bat after uh, after the game. And where'd you know him from? We played together with the Red Sox. Okay, that's right. So right. we played together in Salem, and, yeah, Salem and Portland. So what are the other some of uh, unusual like fun mementos like that, like broken bats of, of friends, teammates, like other kind of stuff that you save that you kind of like. That's kind of the only one that I have from like the big league experience is is Rizzo sent over the broken bat and uh, I sent him over the I sent him over a baseball that was a, I, I put on K number one okay because I struck him out, um, but yeah no I don't know uh, I don't have a whole lot of else of, of the minor league or major league stuff I mean I've got bags and bags of gear but I don't really have a ton of super personal stuff. I remember one time, me and uh, Glenn Dishman, uh, your former pitching coach, we, we were talking. I don't know how it came up, but we're talking ball and about the guys on the roster. And I remember Dishman saying, like, just how proud he was of you. He's like, look, this guy doesn't throw 99. This guy doesn't have, like, this hellacious splitter, you know, or, you know, some trick pitch or anything like that. But look what he's done. You know, look the way that he's grinded. Look the way that he made it. Look, look what he's contributed to the organization. And certainly everyone always wants more time in the major leagues and more wins. But I'm wondering – what makes you most proud about what you were able to do? Probably pretty close to what Dish said. I mean, I knew all along I was a pretty average pitcher. I mean, out of college, I was, you know, 92, 94 with a curveball. Uh, I get into pro ball and immediately I'm told that what I have isn't good enough and that I've got a long way to go uh, from from the organizational pitching coordinator, which is kind of the, the guy who's making the decisions. Uh, and then get traded to the Dodgers and really just – struggle out of the gate. I mean, I 
Josh Bard in New Orleans in 2012 sits me down in the bullpen after a pretty terrible April. I think I walked like 30-some guys in April. And he sat me down in the bullpen in New Orleans, and it's hot and it's muggy and there's nobody around, and he just just straightened me out. It was like, whatever you're doing is not good enough, and your two-seam is trash, so you gotta you got to bang that thing, and your curveball's good, but we can't throw it every pitch. And... That was the only. I think that's probably the only time on a baseball field where I've been almost in tears because it was it was that kind of a in your face. This isn't good enough uh, talk. And so from that point forward, you know, I, I I did. I figured it out. I straightened it out. I banged the two seam. Went to four seam. It started to cut a little bit. And I guess the thing I'm most proud of is just just grinding it out and figuring out how to pitch and and displaying the ability to pitch on a somewhat regular basis. Um, I guess the on the flip side, the thing I'm, I guess I'm not so proud of is, is my health history, but some of that's unavoidable or out of your control, but it kind of is in your control. But nonetheless, yeah, no, it's, uh, that's, that's definitely it. Yeah, I remember when you walked off the mound, I'm broadcasting the game. It's July 18th, 2014 at Isotopes Park against Sacramento. And I remember just thinking this does not look good the way that he's coming off the mound with the trainer. Um, I'm pretty sure Fed was catching uh, that day. Um, did you know your elbow was toast? As you were walking off the mound? Yeah, yeah, I was pretty sure. Um, I was a changeup, and it turned out to be a sack fly. Um, yeah, I mean, it was a pain that I had never felt before, and so I'd, I'd tried to get through it, and uh, I kind of got pushed out of my rehab a little bit quick, and there was opportunity in the big leagues, and they didn't have a lot of depth at that time, and so they got me out to see if I could get ready enough to go back to the big leagues and it turned out the way it did um but yeah that's uh that's the way that cookie crumble actually hurt my elbow in the big leagues against jose fernandez in miami came off from that start pitched okay not great but uh had definitely some some tenderness on the epicondyle on the inside of the elbow and then tried to give it a go in in uh in el paso and then some rehab time and then yeah i you can't forget that pitch did you do you feel it? You feel it like is it like as you're as you're delivering the pitch, you feel something. I remember like feeling like I got the ball out of my hand and like then my arm recoiled, which in the film it does not. But I felt like as soon as I let go of the ball, that like I gator armed it and just kind of T Rexed it and was like, this isn't good. And and Possum was a trainer then and is still an unbelievable trainer and a fantastic human being, and he knew it was. Not good, and so he came sprinting out, and um, yeah, I mean that's it's a pain that you can't. I don't know. I've torn a couple of ligaments, one in my left thumb to get me started pitching, and the other one <laughs> in my right elbow to stop me from pitching. So um, both a similar situation, a similar feeling in terms of uh, what it feels like to separate ligament from bone. There's so much talk in baseball about pitch counts and what can be done to keep guys healthier for longer, and I know it's just your example, but you look back and say. If this, if that, is there anything, or is it just it's a violent act throwing a baseball? And you know, and as you said, there was an opportunity in the big leagues, and they needed somebody, and you're you're trying to figure out a way to get there and stay there. Yeah, a lot of pressure in that aspect to just get back, just get out there, um, because you only get so many opportunities. And you know, when when guys are going down and they need arms, and you could be a guy could could be the arm, you want to get out there and do what you have to do, and. From that side, I mean, I wish I would have found the training that I found the last couple of years. Um, I, out of all the things that are taught in, in pitching now about 
how to separate hips and shoulders and how to stay back and all this kind of stuff. There's not a lot of people out there teaching you actually how to use your body. And so I ran into some people, uh, a really good outfit out of Ahwatukee, the Phoenix area, and uh, Evo Ultra Fit is what they're called. they got stuff on YouTube, and Ryan Matson's one of their big clients, and they've had Matt Kemp and Jerry Harrison Jr., and they've had a lot of guys, a lot of NFL guys, and they basically teach you how to use your body, what 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 muscles are supposed to be con- contracting at what point and what you're actually supposed to feel. Uh, what muscles are actually supposed to be activating as you're doing a squat or you're doing stuff. And that kind of stuff really, really tuned me up the last couple of years. And although I didn't have the, I, I mean, I got successful enough to go to Japan, but that training really trained my brain how to use my body. And I look back and wish I would have had that knowledge yeah. back in 2012, 13, and 14 when I really needed it. So when you when you miss all of 2015, how much, uh, how much time are you back home? It's got to be weird. I mean, you're rehabbing. You're you're under contract, but yet you're just not a part of anything for that year. Yeah, I wasn't under contract, so they DFA'd oh, me at the end of fourteen. Okay, and I was went unclaimed, and then uh, because of my time I'd been since I was drafted, I became an unrestricted minor league free agent. So I spent 2015 bartending at the Melting Pot. Really? As my in uh, what city? In Glendale. In Glendale. Not too far from where I live, so off of 59th Avenue and the 101. Uh, it was one of the only jobs I could find that would they opened up late and shut down early, so I could work like basically from like 3 to 11 mm-hmm. and then be home and then go to rehab the next day at you know, 7, 8 in the morning so that I could get that in. But that was uh, one of those things where you get workers' comp of Arizona workers' comp, which isn't a, a bunch of money, but they required if you could lift to have a job. If you could lift more than 25 pounds, you had to – get a job in order to get the workers' compensation. And so uh, you can cheat the system and, uh, quote-unquote, apply for jobs. Uh, but I decided just I didn't really want to get caught in that situation, so I just got a job and was slinging drinks and What's cheese. your favorite drink to sling? Ah, <laughs> uh, shoot, I don't know. I, I don't know if any of them were all that fun to, to, to sling, but the uh, the love martini was definitely the most ordered item on okay. the menu. And, uh, What's in a love martini? Shoot, it was Malibu rum and triple sec. And there was one other ingredient with a splash of cranberry in it, so it made it like a pink martini. And then we would cut the strawberries into heart-shaped um, and drop a few strawberries in there. So you get three hearts in this pink martini, and I poured I poured a lot of those. All right, uh, this is a good transition for this question. If you don't want to answer it, you don't have to if it's too personal, and I'll, uh, I'll make a note and delete it out. But I remember talking to somebody, a uh, ball player, and he said, I went on the disabled list three times, and my wife got pregnant all three times that I went on the disabled list. <laughs> <laughs> and I have heard that there might be a ratio of, of guys who were on the disabled list, and then nine months later, uh, you know, they welcome a child into the into the world. Yeah, both of my boys are right around. Uh, they were conceived right in spring training, right around uh, St. Patrick's Day, right around this time of year. Actually. Okay, so my both of my boys are late November boys, two years apart. All right. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of theories out there on the disabled list, and you can you can make the acronym whatever you'd like, but. Um, <laughs> Some of, some of them call it the drinking list, and some call it the other, th- you know, whatever else. Yeah. But, yeah, no, that's that – you have a lot of downtime, and you got a lot of – if you're on the major league deal, you got a lot of money coming in and a lot of downtime, and therefore you have a lot of possibilities. Right. Speaking of possibilities, let's go to uh, 2000 
17 when you went to Japan. Started that season with uh, the Marlins at AAA. And then you go to the Cebu Lions. Uh, you had made 12 starts at AAA. Explain the process of, of how that comes about to go overseas. This started in 2016 when I was in Des Moines and uh, actually had a look from the Yumiori Giants and a, a guy I played with, Josh Fields, if you remember that name, uh, third baseman Josh Fields, not reliever Josh Fields, but he was working for the Yumiori Giants and they were interested in taking me in 2016 over to Japan. So I'd, <clears throat> I'd worked with my agent to kind of market myself for that potential. Um, I actually had a contract on the table uh, the morning I started in Des Moines and that evening I blew my oblique. Oh, no. So I had as I call it, the most disappointing day of my career, which in which there was a six-figure sum on the table guaranteed, and I went out there and pitched that night, and in the fifth inning, I strained my oblique and lost that opportunity. Gosh. Um, so that was 2016, and then 2017 comes, and pitch well, and there's rumblings, and the word had gotten out to the Japanese scouts of what happened the year before that Yumiura was going to bring me over, and um, so there was – Japanese people are a little bit uh, – they're funny about that kind of stuff. So they tried to keep it real quiet for me, like that there was actual interest. My agent kind of let, led on to it, but um, it just worked out that they put a contract on the table and we negotiated a little bit and uh, it was signed and you can't, somebody puts a six figure sum in front of you, it's hard to turn it mm-hmm. down. So I took that opportunity and, you know, I can look back and say whatever I want, but like six, seven days after I signed, Edison Volquez blew his, knee i think first had his knee knee go and then his elbow and that would have been me so i could have been back in the big leagues and but i don't regret any of it and i had a great time in japan and that whole courting process of pitching well and i actually pitched well in in a tough place to pitch well when i got the the final straw that kind of got me the contract was a really good start in colorado springs and um i think i went i think i went eight innings that night and uh pitched really well and Kevin Hodges was the Japanese scout for Cebu that's out of Houston and liked what he saw and the next thing I know I've I'm in New Orleans and call my wife and say I got it going to Japan and it's a it was a it was a night it was more money than I would have made in the big leagues had I been in the big leagues the rest of the year compare what it's like flying to Japan versus flying to (laughs) Boston to start your professional career just out of college well that's a good comparison uh Almost equal amounts of uncertainty. Uh, no idea what you're getting into. So, I mean, baseball-wise, I knew I was, I was going to go out there and pitch. Um, surroundings, etc. no idea going to Boston, uh, what they were going to be. I'd never been actually east of, like, well, I went to Pennsylvania, I guess, but that was a super sheltered experience in terms of, like, getting outside of the woods of Williamsport. So, uh, I hadn't really been a whole lot of East Coast uh, in my life, and so that was a completely new, I was kind of surprised, like, oh, they have roads and trees and signs just like we do back home type of thing. Uh, and then you get to Japan, and you get off, and nothing's in English, and you have to wait your turn on the on the over, over, overhead uh, intercom to get the message in English to kind of figure out what's going on. And, yeah, a lot of, lot of craziness when you get to Japan in terms of just not sure what you're going to get. I mean, you're going to get an apartment with seven-foot ceilings and a little tiny Where, do you live? Where did you live? Uh, so the team I played for was out of Tokorozawa, Japan, and I actually lived in Tokorozawa, which is somewhat of a rarity, I guess, in the Japanese. When, when foreign players come over, they house them kind of in the best spot, and it just so happened this apartment had opened up, and 
it was a nice big apartment for Japanese standards, and uh, the rest of the guys stayed down like 40 minutes away, and I was like 12 minutes away. Oh, wow. So I was fortunate in that aspect. But I had a nice third-story apartment. About, it was probably 1,500 square feet, 1,200 square feet. It was nice and big. It was mm-hmm. technically Japanese four bedrooms, but it was really three bedrooms, and everything's a little smaller there in terms of like countertop height and stuff like that, but... No, it was a nice apartment. Enjoyed, really enjoyed my time over there. Yeah, what about food? Like, how much did you like sushi and Japanese cuisine before you got there? How much did you experiment with with learning different things, different food items? So my dad played at the University of Hawaii when when he played college football. And so since I was a kid, we'd experienced Asian cuisine all over. I mean, most of our birthday dinners as a family were at, like, a teppanyaki or a sushi house. And so I had already known majority of what Japanese food was. And so... I loved it. I mean, Japanese sushi is different than American sushi in that you get a piece of fish on a rice ball for the most part. So if you don't really actually like raw fish, then you're not in a good place. Like, you're not getting cream cheese and spicy, you know, spicy mayo and stuff all over your all over your sushi. Like, you're getting wasabi, a little dab of wasabi on a rice ball and a, and a raw piece of fish. But I loved it. It was fantastic. The Korean barbecue, which is basically raw. Most of the time it's beef. You can get pork as well, but... They do like a charcoal grill in front of you, and you cook your own meat, and that's by far the best food I've ever eaten in my life. So I really, really thoroughly enjoyed my my time in Japan. That's good. I'm glad because, I mean, you have to you have to enjoy the entire experience. I remember talking to Ken Maka, and Maka was there for a long time, and he said that when he went there, he thought, I'm going to do it exactly their way. I'm not going to be the American who just says, like, no, 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 this is my set way. He's like, if I'm going to go, I'm going to do everything their way. They ended up loving him. He became one of their most famous Americans who went over to Japan. Um, and you weren't there for that long. Um, I've always heard about how like intense their training sessions are, especially in spring training compared to America. What did you experience middle of the season going over there? Yeah, they do everything, a lot of everything. Um, I went out. I actually went to Japan the off season before that to travel for a Korean team, and they kind of all have the same philosophy, and they understand that they're not the biggest, strongest people, and so they have to do everything that is they're capable of doing it really well. And so, uh, especially the Korean side, they do hundreds and hundreds of reps at all different speeds, slow speed, really fast, rapid fire, like all kinds of stuff. And uh, mid-season in Japan wasn't <clears throat> wasn't as crazy, but, like, the warm-ups are long. I mean, 30 minutes, 35 minutes of calisthenics and jogging and doing that kind of stuff. And they pretty much let the Americans outside of that warm-up do kind of whatever they want. Um, but, yeah, they <laughs> it's a different – it's a different workload for the native players than it is here in America. Did you take anything back to the United States? Like, you know what? I kind of like that. I want to. I want to. I want to do that more often, or try that more often. That sounds like a no. <laughs> Probably not. I mean, they they literally just kind of let me stick to my routine. And I, at that point, I mean, I was nine, ten years into my pro career, and so I had my routine down. And so I wasn't really all that interested in trying to re you know reinvent my wheel. Just kind of stick with it and try to. As you said uh, of the guy before, I wanted to do things as much their way as possible but be as successful as possible because my goal was to spend the rest of my career over there. Why would you come back? Didn't get the opportunity to go back over for the most part. Uh, The situation that got dealt to me really wasn't a good one. Um, I went over there and they had 
they have six starters in the rotation. They had five cemented, and they were rotating three different guys for the sixth spot. So when they brought me over, I was the fourth guy to be an option for the sixth spot. And so uh, it just wasn't it wasn't a great opportunity, and there was already kind of a, a riff between the manager and the scouting and the GM. Um, so over there, the, the managers have full responsibility and power over everything baseball-related. And the GM has no say in who gets sent up, sent down. He does his best to sign as good of players and manage the budget, essentially. But once the players are in-house, the manager has complete control. Oh, that's interesting. So Ernesto Mejia kind of didn't do his part. He signed a big three-year, $15 million deal and kind of showed up and didn't perform all that well. And it was a new manager who didn't really appreciate that they signed him for the amount of money that they did which made him the highest-played player on the team, which is not something that happens all that often in, in Japan for a foreigner to be the highest-paid guy. And then he didn't perform. And so when I came over as another foreign guy, I kind of got put in some spots that weren't all that advantageous to a foreign player and uh, got sent up and sent down and did that a few times and just really never got a real opportunity to, to perform. Yeah. But you enjoy the experience. The, the country and all yeah, that. Yeah, the country, the people, the culture, the, the guys I've met. I mean, I, I, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't, I would, I would seriously, I would have loved to spend, be over there right now mm-hmm. playing and, and still, still be making money and, and, and throwing a baseball in Japan. That been, that was the goal of play till I was 34, 35 and do the rest of it over there. Yeah. You got about five, 10 minutes left. Yeah. I know you got to get back to work. Um, what are some of the more, uh, do you have a favorite brawl or the worst brawl that you were in? Were you in that Memphis-Albuquerque one? Were you up for that one? I was up in the big leagues for that one, okay. so I was not in Albuquerque for that and one. did you miss the ear-biting? I was, I was a first-base coach you for the ear-biting. You were the first-base yeah. coach. So, Alex Carrero, that was that, – that, so, yeah, I was in charge. I was hurt at that time. Um, so, I was going out to coach first base because I couldn't do anything else. And uh, that altercation started – just as I was leaving the dugout, and then I could see it happen from the first base box and uh, saw the scuffle and then saw the breakaway and then saw Possum on the ground picking something up and putting it in a cup and again came back to the dugout and guys were just deer in the headlights, just didn't have any idea what was just what had just happened. And it was, yeah, Alex Guerrero got his ear bit off. I remember I was, I'm up in the press box and I can't see the home dugout, so I had no idea what was going on. Like I, I just I can't see it. I have no idea, and uh, and I see that both of them are out of the game, and I'm thinking, oh, Guerrero's got called up to the major leagues because there was a lot of talk about whether he was about to get called up. They just moved him to second. He was crushing home runs left and right. And I'm like, all right, you know, he got his at bats in. He's uh, he's going to the major leagues, and all of a sudden, my phone just starts blowing up with just like text messages and stuff from Twitter, and I'm like, what is all this that's going on? I still had no idea. The game ends. And then someone says, yeah, they, they took Guerrero to the hospital. I'm like, what? <laughs> like, what, what happened? I go down to the clubhouse, and Barry Hill yells at me to get the hell out of this office, and then Dejon Watson tells me to get the hell out of this. And so I just walk back to the t- hotel. I still had no idea. I go back to the hotel. I take a nap because it was a morning game. It was a kid's day matinee. And all of a sudden, I wake up like three hours later, and I, you know, go on Twitter, ESPN.com, and I'm like, what? Ear biting? I had no idea. And I'm the one who's calling the game. Yeah, I mean it was done in the it was done in the dugout, started on the field at the at the pitching visit, and yeah, I mean that was a uh, that's one of those altercations that you'll never forget and you'll never quite understand, but it it sure enough it happened. It's a real thing. Wow, what are some other unique only in minor league baseball 
not necessarily ear biting uh, situations. <laughs> oh yeah, the, the Boston Marathon thing. Um, you know, you're drafted by the Red Sox, and um, it was uh, April fifteenth of two thousand thirteen. We've got a day game in Des Moines, Iowa, and uh, you started that day, and you know, a place where you're a place where you know people, and this horrendous thing happened. And tell us about some of the conversations with you and your wife and some people that you know. Yes, and my wife actually had a, a friend she went to high school with that was, I think, on the other other side of the street of the bombing, like maybe two, 300 yards down, so didn't get hit by it. But she actually, on Facebook, knew many people that were posted that they'd got hit by shrapnel or whatever that happened there. Uh, I knew Danny Nava pretty well, um, still know him pretty well, and he was in Boston. And it was kind of hard to contact those guys, but, you know, we all knew that, that – None of the baseball players were necessarily involved in it, but it was just kind of one of those striking times when, you know, when terrorism hits and it hits close to people that you know. It's kind of crazy, and my wife was definitely more in tune with what was going on there. But, yeah, it was, I mean, you definitely start thinking about those people that are involved there and that they, I think they shut down. I think they they locked up the stadium that day and didn't play that night and ended up playing a couple of days later, which is the infamous – David Ortiz speech mm-hmm. um, yeah. on the field, which happened, I think, I think it was two days later. I think they canceled the game that night and the next day. Um, but yeah, it's uh, yeah, that was an interesting day. I actually don't even remember pitching that day, and that probably is more so because of after I came in. I and now that we're sitting here talking, I do remember coming into the clubhouse after pitching and hearing that the the bombing had happened, and immediately going to my phone to see see what was happening, if, if where it was, and mm-hmm. how many people were involved. And then, obviously, my wife had probably texted me 100 times at that point. So, yeah, that was, a, that was an interesting day in my career that I don't remember all that well, but definitely a, had a close impact due to my wife being born and raised 45 minutes outside of Boston. Yeah. Do you have other, uh, like, a stupid, like, really, we have to wear this jersey? Like, you know, jersey auction kind of, like, stuff. You're like, really? We have to wear this jersey? Or other just uh, only in minor league baseball memories? Oh, man. I mean, I can't tell you how many jerseys we've worn that I've been like, is this real? Like, this is, I mean, pink jerseys and superhero jerseys and old-timer. Like, I think the old-timer ones in the lower minors were the ones that you were like, is this real? Like, get these literally, like, wool-ish type jerseys that are huge. I mean, down almost to your knees with, like, the shorter pants. And oftentimes, I remember a couple in Greenville where, like, they would give us the uniforms, and, like, it wasn't, like, one team. It was, like, a five guys on on our team would have one jersey and five guys with another. And, five, and so you'd have, like, five different uniforms to make up one game. And you're like, what is going on here? Like, can we at least just have all one uniform and not like a cream uniform and an off-white and a white? And anyway, it was yeah. We've there's been a, there's been a number of jerseys and hats and I mean the worst ones are when you get as long as the hat is good. I think the jerseys are bearable, but it's really bad when you get like the the fake leather strap adjustable like <laughs> floppy hat, and you're like I'm supposed to go start and pitch with this hat on. Like, it, this is like, it's like Small's hat from yeah. the Sandlot. I right. mean, it's almost disrespectful, honestly. Like, and that's the way a lot of players feel about it, too, is like when you get those kind of half-baked thoughts and they turn into uniforms and you're like, yo, like, I'm supposed to be treated as professional here and this is not professional. 
We'll make sure that we keep that in mind when we come up with our marketing marketing ideas for the Albuquerque isotopes in the future. <laughs> Although I think the topes have been pretty good over the years. We John, probably... John Traub is a legend. He is a he is as good a GM as there is in the game, and I don't I don't recall ever getting the Velcro strap or the <laughs> the little league you know the little league camp hat in in Albuquerque. I'm sure maybe it happened once or twice, but we usually we we had a good setup there. So now that you've transitioned into uh, the other side, has there been a time yet in which, you know, you're talking to a potential client or someone who's a client and you go, uh, well, you know, when I pitched at Dodger Stadium and, uh, and then try to relate it back to, like, what you're trying to sell right now? I haven't brought it out, but, you know, when the company asked me to do my bio and stuff, like, it's, I, I looked at, there's, there's some other players that are doing commercial real estate that played in the big leagues or played a long time in, in minor league baseball, whatever, and so... It's in my bio, and so one a guy I spoke to last week, actually. Uh, his cousin's a big investor out of Southern California, and he was from Southern California. And we exchanged emails and then talked on the phone for like 30 minutes, and then next thing I know, he sends me a follow-up email after, and he's like, you played for the Dodgers? And starts rattling off like all the guys he watched in Brooklyn when he was a kid and mentions all the names and all that kind of stuff, you know, Koufax and Wills and and Gibson and all these guys. And, uh, you know, of course, I've been encouraged by both the, my company and by, you know, the, the people that I've talked to outside of Major League Baseball but that are still involved in kind of the career development outside of the game. They're like, use it as much as you can. And so I just shot an email back to him and just kind of listed off, like I had a unique experience with Sandy Koufax, and he kind of gave me a curveball pitching lesson. With Please tell us this Sandy Koufax story. So Sandy's in, in camp, and um, he comes every year, but he's super incognito, and he doesn't like the attention, and so he stays behind the fence. And I threw a bullpen and had a, a good session, and my dad happened to be there for it, so he was watching. And then um, I get done with my pen, and Sandy pulls me aside, and just he's like, how do you, you, know, how do you grip your curveball? And so we just start going through it. And, um, you know, I show him and talk to him about kind of where, I'm, where my eyes are at and what I'm trying to do with my hand and what I think about to get through the ball. And then he, he basically asked me, you know, well, can I give you a couple pointers? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> only an ignorant fellow would say no. But uh, so I absolutely, and of course my dad's literally standing right next to me. And so we're sitting there talking to Sandy Koufax, and he starts gripping the baseball, and his hands are so big. I mean, he has he has hands of, of a guy that's pr- you would think would be 6'10". And so he, he showed me his grip of his curveball, and it's hard to describe it in, in radio, but um, he would basically pinch the ball like a forkball between his middle finger and his ring finger. And then he would wrap his fingers all the way around the ball and split, his thumb would split his, his middle finger and his index, or his middle finger and his uh, ring finger. And he would have this, like, choke grip on it. And his, he could almost touch his fingers. His hands were so big that he could almost touch his fingertips. And he talked about being able to manipulate the curveball all the way from 12-6 to 1-7 to 11-5. And he could craft his curveball either in or away from either side of the plate, which either side batter. So, And that's just that's crazy. I mean... <laughs> I've never heard of anybody doing that, but he basically was able to to do that. And uh, I mean, then he signed a ball for me after and wrote a little personal note on it. And of course, that's in the trophy case at home. But definitely a unique experience, especially as he ages. And there's 
you know, I'll take that one to my grave. It's pretty cool. Yeah, that that is the one thing about the Dodgers, man. It's just like the history everywhere, you know. Um, either even in Albuquerque, you know, like the guys Ramon Martinez just shows up one day, you know, and Tommy Davis shows up one day, and then at spring training, all the legends are there. And, you know, that, that was the thing that, that, that I'm glad that it never got old was just seeing these guys and they're just hanging out and they're like, hey, and they just want to talk baseball. You know, they want to talk pitching or whatever, you know, or they want to talk about where should we go get dinner. Right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they are, they are a very approachable group and constantly around. And I think the new ownership group has done a really good job of trying to bring those people back in to the fold and give them, give them a voice and give them a jersey and give them a locker when it's necessary and uh, definitely a unique experience to be able to be around guys that maybe I didn't grow up watching, but as you kind of further your life in baseball, you kind of gain more knowledge and respect for those who came before you. And yeah, you get to be around Don Newcomb and I mean, his story is absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. And I mean, God rest his soul. He just passed not too long ago, but did you hear him speech? Cause wouldn't he usually go to the minor league side and give the whole speech about everything that he had went through and everything? Yeah, he did that once, but I think my my more intimate setting was the Dodgers did like a kind of a rookie camp in the winter, mm-hmm. and I got to be, you know, I think there was like 10 guys, 12 guys that went to it, and he came in and spoke to us in a small setting in the lunchroom in the big league stadium, and uh, actually almost fainted during it, and <laughs> we don't really know what happened, but he got really hot, and we had to pause, and then he came back and, t- and spoke some more, but like, you know, you look back, and he was with Jackie Robinson, man, like he was... Yeah. Nobody really talks about him, but he was as good as they came, but he was second noticed to yeah. Jackie because he's on the field every day. But, man, Don Newcomb went through some stuff yeah. and, and then went some, through some stuff post-playing that really changed his life, I mean, changed his family. I mean, uh, it's a good story to read. Uh, I hope somebody at some point writes an autobiography about him because it's, uh, it's a story that's not that well told, but uh, you gain a lot of respect for the stuff that he went through on and off the field for many years. Yeah, he was he was always fun and always the best dressed guy at the ballpark. Always, you know, with his hats and his suits and everything. Uh, I think for like five minutes, I've been thinking, like, all right, that's the last question, and then you say, and then like, oh, I want to hear about this, but uh, <laughs> we'll let you go. Uh, this was fun. Thank you uh, for connecting on LinkedIn. Uh, we got to stay in touch. And uh, thanks for the visit today. Yeah, absolutely. Next time you're back, we'll do it again. Yeah, sounds good. That's Stephen Fife, and this was Life Around the Seams. 